After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Bethany Saltman. Bethany is an author, award-winning editor, and researcher. Her work can be seen in magazines like The New Yorker, New York Magazine, Atlantic Monthly, Parents, Town and Country, and many others. Her first book, Strange Situation, Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment, was just released in April of 2020. In 1992, Bethany graduated from Antioch College, where she was one of the architects of the nation's first affirmative consent policy. She went on to receive her MFA in poetry from Brooklyn College in 1994, where she studied with Allen Ginsberg. A longtime Zen student, Bethany is devoted to the fine art and game-changing effects of paying attention. Welcome to the Meta Hour, Bethany. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining me, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you. We're both you. recording remotely today from our respective quarantine homes, still in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. So I thank you for taking the time to talk today. And for those people out there who aren't familiar with you and your work, why don't you start a little with your path and how you came to writing, research, and Zen practice? That's like a big question, because <laughs> they probably each have a different answer, uh, including a few years living in a monastery. Sure. Um, so yeah, I guess I'll start with, um, the writing. Um, I, I've always been a writer, um, ever since I was a little girl and writing away in my journals. And, and that was really all I ever really wanted to do. Um, and I, I knew that I was never gonna, I didn't think I would ever actually be a writer, be a professional writer. So I was really, um, interested in figuring figuring out how to make a living. So I got my MFA in poetry so that I could teach, which is what I ended up doing. And so um, I was a, a poet and um, really interested in words and, and just connecting with the world in that way. Um, so then when I was in my 20s, after I got my MFA in poetry, I went through a very difficult time personally. And, um, and that's when I discovered Zen in a Barnes and Noble, actually, in on the <laughs> Upper West Side of Manhattan, um, a book by Joko Beck um, really changed my life. So I had never considered myself a spiritual person at all. I, I considered myself pretty intellectual, a feminist. I wasn't at all interested in um, submission of any kind, which is how I understood pretty much all religion. And I certainly didn't consider myself a meditator. That seemed way off my, off my brand, if you will. But I, um, I saw this book in a Barnes and Noble and sat down and read it and said, Oh, this is what I've been looking for. And then even at that time I thought, well, this is great. I'm going to read about this. I'm going to learn about this, but I'll never actually meditate because that's just not who I am. <laughs> And then, you know, a year or two of just, you know, ingesting the Dharma, I finally sat down um, on my bed in Brooklyn and did what Joko Beck suggested, which is just be quiet for 30 seconds and see what happens. And then I've been a, um, a pretty hardcore Zen practitioner for a long time since. Do you remember the name of the book? 
Of course, nothing special living Zen. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, I am forever grateful for that book and to Joko Beck. Was that a process where you felt that, um, let's say surrendering, you know, uh, was not the same as submitting? Well, I began to understand that what I thought was this kind of submission or surrendering was actually exactly what I needed to do because I was fighting everything. I was fighting reality. I was fighting my thoughts. I was fighting the people around me. I was fighting, um, you know, I was a fighter. I grew up a fighter. I'm still a fighter. Um, but I began to see that I could fight for what I thought was important, but not necessarily, I didn't have to be, um, in conflict with the world in the same way. And that if I could learn to, um, be more in touch with myself, I could actually go, you know, with, you know, be in a flow with, uh, reality much more. And it, in it, so that's what I discovered in, in meditation was that it wasn't surrendering as much as letting go, you know, and letting myself be who I really am instead of this fighting machine. Well, the words are often so difficult. I know that from the word loving kindness or love, you know, yeah. it can sound like exceeding or, you know, like being sweet or, or something like that, which yeah. doesn't really mean that at all. Right. Yeah. It was really a, a matter of me understanding that letting go meant softening, not letting go of something important that I needed. It was just a matter of something that happened in my heart that was um, for me, for me, and that I felt better. And the first time I sat still in my bed, um, you know, using Joko Beck's advice, I was hooked because I realized like, oh my God, like I'm in here. And I didn't know I was in here. I thought I, I don't know where I thought I was, but I, but I, but I contacted myself in a way that I had always done through poetry. And I always knew that there was this, you know, kind of beautiful, um, illumination that's possible, but I didn't know that I could do it. I didn't know that it could happen. I thought it just sort of occurred occasionally, you know, walking, taking a walk in a park or on a beautiful day or in deep emotion or, you know, not to say that I was just all sentimental, but that it, it just happened occasionally through the creative process. But then when I sat Zazen for the first time, I realized that I could contact this self, this, you know, stillness when, whenever I wanted, of course it didn't turn out that way. Now you know, mm-hmm. it, it comes and it goes, but yeah. So it was, um, a very, very much me just learning that softening was, within my reach. And it was a nice thing, a good thing, not a threat. It's funny to hear you say that you'd always wanted to be a writer as a child, because I would say that about myself as well. Mm-hmm. But I never wrote. <laughs> it wasn't like uh-huh, I was you know, uh-huh. <laughs> dashing off these poems or something as a child. It was uh, it was too intimidating and too felt too out of my reach. But I would say it was my heart's desire. Yeah. Well, I, I still feel like it's out of my reach and I just came out with a book. Right. (laughs) So, you know, I, I think for me being a writer was a sensibility of there's really no place for me in this world other than seeing what I see, you know, trying to form words. Um, so that's what I meant. I, I didn't grow up in the kind of family where you might say, I want to be a writer when I grew up. That's that wasn't available. That wasn't the thing. Mm-hmm. I think looking back, I can say that I I knew that that's what I needed to do and wanted to do. But it certainly wasn't like on career day. I said I want to be a writer. I had no idea. Mm. It's also interesting to me that you, if I have the sequence right, you you wrote poetry before. Well, clearly before you wrote this book. Yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah. before you wrote much prose, perhaps. And mm-hmm. I I find poetry just so difficult because first of all it's shorter you know it's like it's not forgiving like you can have a bad sentence in a paragraph but you know Mm. you can't really have a bad sentence in a poem interesting well if you're a poet you can't have a bad sentence in a paragraph either (laughs) i mean even just in this conversation i'm like oh my god so many bad sentences (laughs) (laughs) oh no yeah 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 Um, so yeah again it's a sensibility i'm surprised that you feel that way because Zazen 
is poetry. That's how I understand mm-hmm. it. Um, so, and you know, it's like the koan. It's just how minimal can we make it? How distilled mm-hmm. can we become? And so that's why poetry. I, I wrote poetry before I ever discovered Zen as well. I talked to my husband about this all the time. When I found Zen, it wasn't like, oh, you know, what an interesting thing. It was like, oh, I know about this. And there's this tool you can use to get there. And then I discovered Buddhism on top of it. And I was like, wow, it's not just a, a, a form. It's not just a practice. It's a whole world. It's this mm-hmm. whole um, you know, culture, it's a whole language, it's a whole, um, you know, a universe of learning, um, and stories and, you know, all the rest of it. So it was a very, I definitely, I got into Buddhism through the inside, you know, just from this experience of Zazen. Well, it's also very interesting because I didn't mean to imply, by the way, that, you know, I thought it was okay to have like a bad sentence and you just sprinkle them throughout. No, no, no. Go, but, you I know, know, I know. There's a certain, um, austerity in mm-hmm. poetry and in zazen and it's probably no accident that i uh was drawn to a path with a fair amount of explanation mm-hmm. you know perhaps because my mind was just so chaotic or mm-hmm. um i needed structure but not an explicable structure interesting you know i needed a different kind of understanding and uh, in fact when i was teaching with uh roshi john halifax for example um at one point, she said to me, "That's a lot of explanation." <laughs> you know? like, I thought, "Yeah, you know, it's like this is right. why you're with the breath, and this is what happens, and this is the important thing, and letting go, and this is, you know, that's how we teach, you know, that's how I practice." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that is definitely one way to uh, to to do that. Interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah, so it, really it sounds like you know the letting go, the um, distinction between what you want to fight for and what you really need to let go of. All of it sounds like a strong foundation for motherhood. Yet the way you describe your experience as a young mother in your book, it says being pretty convinced I was ruining my baby's life because I didn't know how to love her, mm-hmm. and that's why you ultimately began the the writing of that book strange situation so the book is a mix of very personal stories about your life as a mother and combined with intricate research on the study of attachment so what was the actual inspiration that had you sit down and start to write yeah well like you point out here it was that i you know this is the the crazy conundrum i loved my daughter so much that i was afraid I wasn't loving her enough. And that sounds sort of um, ridiculous or like it was abstract or I should have known better or something, but it was, it's true. It was devastating. Um, I felt so connected to her and so um, wanting to do right by her. And so um, like, it was very difficult for me to be the kind of mother I thought I was supposed to be. So when I got, um, when I became pregnant and I chose to become pregnant, my husband and I lived at Zen Mountain Monastery for a couple of years and considered becoming monks. And then for various reasons, that was not going to be the, the way that we were going to live our lives, we decided. And so we thought, well, let's have a baby instead. You know, that let's, let's do something where we can really get to the bottom of this world and this life and what it means to be human. And, um, and so we... I got pregnant and, um, and I was concerned that I, I, and I, and I, I wasn't concerned. I mean that, um, I actually articulated to myself. I saw a piece that I wrote recently about this, that, um, I was hoping, praying that once motherhood kicked in, once I became a mother, that I was going to be kind of awash with this maternal sensitivity that I was going to know how to do this. And, and I wrote this piece about how, well, and if that's not true, at least there's forgiveness. Maybe she'll forgive me one day because <laughs> I had a lot of, you know, the reason I got involved in Zen practice is because I had a lot of trouble with love and I had a lot of trouble in relationships. My, my childhood was rocky. I was, I had difficulty in my family. I, 
um, I was not at all confident that I was going to be able to be this generous, patient, um, loving person that I thought that mothers were supposed to be. I didn't identify myself in that way. And so when she was born, I was waiting for this kind of maternal transformation and it was not happening. In fact, I felt more like my edgy kind of, you know, irritable self than ever because I was exhausted. I wasn't able to do the things that I normally did. I wasn't able to sit a lot. I, you know, was missing out on my life and I, and I felt guilty for feeling those things. And how could I say and feel this way about this beautiful child? She didn't ask to be born. You know, it became quite a, a world as you can imagine. And so, um, that's when I started to, um, I had a column, a local column on, on being a Buddhist mother. And so every month I sat down and I wrote about this and I um, interviewed a bunch of people and I got to, I did a lot of research just as an excuse base, basically to figure out what the hell was going on in my life. And through that, I started to um, come across attachment and I had begun to see the word attachment through Dr. Sears attachment parenting. And I was very much not interested because I felt like this can't be right. There's a checklist of things you have to do for your kid to become quote attached. And I, you know, the fighter in me came on and I was like, that, that doesn't sound right. But then I started to learn about attachment in this other way. And I started to discern that there was this other thing about attachment. And I knew of course about attachment from a Buddhist perspective, but I started to see that there was another quality of, att of attachment that was being discussed in science. And then I discovered the strange situation, this this 20-minute laboratory procedure that's done, that was created by Mary Ainsworth. I started to, you know, learn about Mary Ainsworth, who was a um, scientist born in 1913. She died in 1999, and she worked with John Bowlby, who was the the founder of attachment theory in England. And she wanted to discover for herself how this worked, and so she did a lot of work in um, in the laboratory and in people's homes, observing relationships, observing mothers and their babies from um, from very young. And she started to discern these patterns of attachment. So there's the, the securely attached relationship, there's the insecurely attached relationship that skews in the avoidant direction, and there's the insecurely attached relationship that skews in the ambivalent direction. That's what she discovered. And the strange situation is a way that she took her years of meticulous, extremely um, detail-oriented uh, research in people's homes and distilled it into a 20-minute um, crucible, basically. So it's a series of reunions and separations where she sees how a child uses the parent as a secure base in times of stress. That's what the attachment system in our bodies is, that's its function, is to um, teach us how to look for security in times of stress. So the securely attached babies use their mothers appropriately and well as a secure base and are able to move in and out. They're able to have this attentional flexibility of moving in and out of fear and then back to playing. And the avoidant babies are, aren't um, apt to use their mothers in that way because they don't trust that the mothers will be there. And the resistant or ambivalent babies tend to go to the mother and then not, they don't get what they need. And then they go back to the floor and playing. Then they go back to the mother and then back to the to the toys and they never get their bread buttered is how I like to say it. So, so it's this mm -hmm. constant sort of, um, seeking for that resolution for that feeling of like, okay, I've got this. Um, and then back to the world of exploring and playing. So Mary Ainsworth, um, developed this strange situation procedure. It's been used tens of thousands of times around the world It's still the gold standard for how to observe an attachment relationship in young children. And I just found it, you know, being someone who likes to distill things, I like, I'm a poet, I, I'm a Zen practitioner, I like things tidy and small. The strange situation <laughs> was just like um, a miracle to me. Like, oh my God, what we can see in this 20 minute love story um, really just blew my mind and blew my heart open. And so I wanted to know more about Mary Ainsworth. So I got on this journey and then I decided, oh, I think there's a book here. 
And so I, I told everybody in these labs and archives that I was, quote, writing a book, but I wasn't writing. I was writing a book proposal mm-hmm. is what I was doing. And so I started doing a lot of the research um, that you have to do in order to write a book proposal. And, um, and then, you know, the whole process took 10 years at least and counting. Wow. Yeah. It was a lot. How would you define, uh, attachment in, in the Buddhist context? In the Buddhist context? Well, this was something that I really wanted to get into in the book. In fact, I have a couple chapters that didn't make it about the intersection of attachment from a Buddhist perspective and attachment from the psychological perspective. Um, and I really think of it as like, you know, the double-edged sword of Manjushri, you know, like, um, from a psychological perspective, this attachment security is what allows us to let go and to explore. So the baby in the strange situation, there are toys on the floor and, um, the secure baby can play with the toys, get nervous that the mother's leaving, get, get reassured that the mother's back and then get back to playing. Um, so they can move back and forth and do their their work of playing. They can let go of their anxiety and play. Um, from a Buddhist perspective, as you know, attachments um, form when we are, you know, clinging. And so it's this perfectly, um, it's this perfect mirror, really, of attachment from these two different angles that describe the human condition of needing um, to know where our bread is buttered. We have to, con- we have to contact, whether in, in meditation, it's the still point, it's um, you know, non-duality, it's um, you know, um, you know, who we, you know, our Buddha nature, or from the relative you know, sort of uh, psychological point of view, whether it's the, the parent, the loving caregiver, the, the other who will absorb our fear for us until we learn how to do it ourselves. So it's, there's absolutely no conflict there. The two work together beautifully. Some, some scholars have written about that. Um, I, I talk about it a little bit in the book, but it was really, you know, not going off the rails a little bit from what Random House wanted. I think you need a, like a director's cut, you know, you need to be able to show that uh, scholarship and and understanding somewhere because it's very interesting. It is. uh, Or maybe it's a separate magazine article or something, I don't know, but I like the idea of a director's cut of a of a book, yeah. you know, just like a movie. It's like, oh, that's what happened. Oh boy, the director's cut of this book is <laughs> quite something. <laughs> it's a whole, it's a, it's a lot. There's a lot that didn't make it. But do you know the quote from D.W. Winnicott, um, who's a British psychoanalyst, I guess in the fifties, yeah. about being a good enough mother? Sure, of course. Yeah. So I first heard that quote uh, quotation from. Mark Epstein, who's a psychiatrist mm-hmm. in, in New York City and a friend, and we were teaching together, and, and he's a big fan of D.W. Winnicott. And first he says that it was all the moms who were bringing their kids to his clinic, and that's why it's good enough mother rather than good enough parent. Mm-hmm. But somebody always in the room raises their hand and said, well, what's a good enough mother? Mm-hmm. And Mark said, someone who can survive their child's rage. Mm. And then somebody always raises their hands and says, what does it mean to survive your child's rage? <laughs> and Mark says, well, it means not um, getting intrusive, like invasive, and also not withdrawing. Mm-hmm, exactly. And then I always say, well, that's just like mindfulness. Well, I would right? say it means surviving your own rage. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Say more. Well, I would say that, um, that, you know, so the attachment work has shown, and this is, you know, moving ahead from Mary Ainsworth to, into her predecessors, that this attachment security gets passed down from generation to generation with a very high percentage, like 75%. That is a huge number. So what we're talking about is the formation of karma and how, um, you know, with really big events, positive or negative, this can shift. But by and large, we um, transmit our attachment, our patterns of attachment to our children. And this is different from attachment styles, which is really, really important point because that people can discern their attachment styles by taking a quiz. And the attachment patterns that I'm talking about come out of a much 
um, deeper kind of understanding that, that, um, you know, we can't, we can't figure out what kind of attachment pattern we have by ourselves. And it's, um, it's required, you know, we have to be in conversation with experts and we have, there are tools and there's a whole assessment. Um, the adult attachment interview is an assessment tool that really brings out the unconscious of the way we understand ourselves in relationship. And, um, so what I've come to, to see is that, um, the securely attached adult is able to have this, this concept of attentional flexibility, which I mentioned before, which is from Mary Main, who's one of Mary Ainsworth's students. That is what a child needs in order to feel like they themselves can use their child, their parent as a secure base. So if my child is crying and looking at me for an uppy, I remember, you know, she would like stand there and, and, you know, raise her arms, needing me to be there for her. And I felt frustrated because I wanted to take a nap. I might feel rage that this child is intruding upon my nap. And so for me to be available for her, I have to be able to work with my own experience of, um, of surviving my rage. And what does it mean to survive your rage as an adult? It means seeing it, acknowledging it, and letting it go. Not pushing it away and not perseverating over it, but being present and seeing, oh, there it is again, you know, and there it is coming up from my feet all the way up, you know, through the top of my head. And, um, and so that's what our, that's what children need is they need a a parent who can survive their own rage so that we can be available. Because as we know, when we're enraged, whether it's because our children pissed us off or the world is on fire or you know, many other things, we are no longer present. We aren't available to ourselves or to anybody in our midst. So, um, so we'll never be able to survive our child's rage if we can't survive our own. Well, not only, I think, are we not present for ourselves or one another, we're not present for information. Exactly. Exactly. So that's a really good point. Information being oh, maybe my child's not in front of me with her hands up crying. Maybe she's just like, maybe she's got a faraway look in her eye. Maybe she is seeming a little distressed. You know, the sensitive parent is sensitive in their own right. And then they can take in the information of their world. And that is, I think, the the truly, you know, revolutionary, important work that attachment theory has for the world, which is that, this is about being a human being and um, being an alive, awake, available human being to the world, to ourselves. Only then can we be the parents that our children deserve. And, and there's no shame in not being able to do that. You know, I think so much of what gets in parents' way is the shame of not being able to be present or being pissed off or being irritated. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. And, and I really want to, um, I really want to encourage people to, um, to let the, let the shame, you know, there's no shame in not knowing how to, um, deal with our shame <laughs> or our rage mm-hmm. or our anger. We just haven't learned how to do it. And the, and the way to learn how to do it is to recognize that we haven't learned how to do it and that it's something we want to do. And then we can start. You know, but all this talk about the way we're supposed to be and, you know, the way like I, when, when Azalea was born and I thought I was supposed to feel a certain way, the only way that I've made any progress as a mother is to come to accept that like, look, this is who I am. And I, I didn't have an easy time of it. I have, you know, rage comes easily to me. I, you know, this is just part of my DNA. And, and, um, so I have to start there. And I'm not doing her any favors by trying to pretend that I'm someone other than who I am. And in fact, as we know, as you know, practitioners, through recognizing the truth of our sensations and our thoughts and our feelings, um, that is the gateway to relaxing those sensations, thoughts, and feelings and being more awake and being more present and being more sensitive parents. 
This is a quotation from your book. You say, regardless of who we are or our bio or otherwise connection to the child we hope to raise well, we nurture secure children by becoming secure in ourselves, by becoming more supple and receptive and flexible in our own minds. That seems the key point, yeah, actually. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the part that Dr. Sears and the checklist of behaviors for raising secure children is just, it's the opposite. It's the absolute opposite. If you don't want to carry your kid in a sling and you're doing it because you think you're supposed to, you're just going to get <laughs> more resentful. If you're trying to co-sleep and you're exhausted and you know, you're going to resent the kid. And if you're, if your husband or your wife or your partner is a resource to you and you need that intimate time at night without your child, you better get it. And, but in order to take care of ourselves as parents, we have to be aware of ourselves as parents. And there is so much, um, working against that. You know, there's the patriarchy, there's society, there's, you know, just the culture of how we are, um, you know, dehumanized, all of us. And then there's the difficulty in being a woman and being a mother and all the messages of how we're supposed to be. And it's, it's that, that should, you know, that supposed to be that gets in our way uh, more than anything. And what the way to develop a secure attachment with our child is to become secure with ourselves. And there's just no, there are no two ways about that. And that's not me. That's the, that's what the science says. I thought you were going to add isolation to that list. I was waiting to hear that word. Oh. Uh, as one of the, along with, you know, the ills yes, of society or the, or the conditioning of society. Yeah, well, especially, well, always. Um, and now, especially, um, you know, speaking of, you know, now and isolation and being in quarantine, um, interestingly, from the beginning, I think things are starting to change because it's been going on for so long. But in the beginning, I heard from so many people that they were miserable, miserable, but their kids were happy. And oh, interesting. of course their kids were happy because they're with their parents all the time. <laughs> and so I just found that, you know, very delightful that there were, um, you know, the parents were having such a hard time and still are and women more than men. And this is a very difficult and complex situation. But from an attachment point of view, kids really just want to be with their parents. Not all kids and not all the time, but it's typical. It's not unexpected. It's not surprising that children would enjoy being at home with their parents all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Assuming it's a healthy environment, of course. Yeah, I mean, so many of my friends told me that um, part of the shock of having that child uh, is the isolation that then comes yes. because it's it's pretty strong. It's very strong. And we don't talk enough about how that feels. We don't talk enough about how important it is that um, parents take care of themselves you know, I, I always tell people from um, an attachment point of view, self-care is childcare. And that is not some like, you know, silly slogan, like go get a manicure. Fine, go get your manicure. But I'm talking about, or my manicure, I love a manicure, but I'm talking about, <laughs> you know, like deep self-study, deep self-care. Um, you know, from a, again, from an from a attachment point of view, and we don't always like this. We don't always want this to be the case. And there's, you know, there are many aspects to this. And I'm not saying it's easy, um, but we and our children really are the same thing for a long time. Um, our children, we and our children work together interdependently. And so what we feed ourselves, we feed our children. When, when our babies are in our bodies. That's literally true. And it continues to be so. But in fact, as we know, that's true for all people, right? Interdependence is not just about us and our kids. How we treat ourselves is how we treat everybody. And, you know, the first conversation we have with ourselves in the morning is with ourselves. The relationship that we have the most and the most intensively is with ourselves. And so that's the relationship that we um, can actually heal. And then, you know, it, it kind of goes everywhere. 
I must say it's kind of funny for me for, to hear you say from an attachment point of view I from know. my f- almost 50 years of Buddhist conditioning. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think, really? Okay. Yeah. Right. right, 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 right. Is that okay? Is that the point of view we want? I don't know. I know. Because it means something else. And I, I would, it does mean something else. And that, that elicits a lot of confusion. I sometimes suggest to people that when they hear what I've done is when I hear the word attachment, not in this context, but within the Buddhist context, I substitute control mm. because I think that's a lot of what it really means. Interesting. <clears throat> yeah. Or and clinging, I've seen, right? Or clinging. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, I'm sure that almost from the get go, there's a tremendous amount of letting go in parenting. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, like I have a friend who, as just one example, I have a friend who, um, describes herself quite publicly as um, having a tremendous amount of anxiety about many things. Mm-hmm. And um, I've watched her not only raise her children, but have strong connections to her grandchildren. And uh, there was one point when one of her grandchildren said to her, uh, when I grow up, I want to be a policeman. And Another one said, when I grow up, I want to be a firefighter. For, for, so for her, you know, mm. that was like, oh, my God, you know, and I lived through that. Uh. Um, <laughs> and uh, but the love was the paramount thing for her and, and the most important. And uh, she wasn't about to try to micromanage the goals and dreams of of these kids. And as it turned out, I think the kid who wanted to be a police officer became something else and the kid who wanted to be a firefighter did become a paramedic and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and it's such an amazing process of sort of letting someone be who they are oh my gosh it truly truly is and again you know i'm harping on this just because i can with you because most people are have no interest in this but from a uh, a dharma point of view if we aren't capable of letting go of all those expectations of ourselves, we're definitely not going to be able to do it with our kids. Mm. And so it truly is a kind of mirror that um, is just, it's so troubling sometimes, (laughs) but it's also so inviting, you know, because here's this person who you actually really love and you think is really, really cool. And, you know, we, we naturally, you know, in healthy systems, have even in unhealthy systems, we tend to have great affection for our kids, even if we can't delight in them because of our own traumas. Um, and, and yet we have all of these expectations and disappointments that in our right mind, we can see like, oh, that can't be right. Like, I love this person and I actually want what's best for her. And yet I don't want to, you know, I don't want her to be a fireman. I, I would, but then you can ask yourself, but don't I just want her to be happy? Mm-hmm. And so it's this incredibly beautiful gift of these tensions that if you're awake to it, and it sounds like your friend is, it's an incredible opportunity to understand the ways that we try to control ourselves and our own desires and our own um, longings. And, you know, so much, so much judgment, so much mistrust, so much insecurity about who we are. And so my daughter is 14 and she has all kinds of interests that I'm not super into. Um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, ultimately I really want her more than anything to, um, to be true to herself. You know, at the same time, I make her read three books a summer and, you know, I, I'm, I can't let go of certain aspirations that I might have for her. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a beautiful opportunity to look closely at the, at our conflicts if we dare, because it's not for the faint of heart. I'll tell you that. (laughs) And does she like her name, your daughter? Yes, she does like her name. That's very nice. Yeah, yeah, she does. (laughs) We used to call her Azzy and she does not like that anymore. (laughs) But no, she likes her name and you know, she, she's, she's a good, she, she likes herself, I think. Mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah. And here's another quotation from your book. Um, 
We say, what I've discovered is that by turning the mind toward love, we love and are loved. It's not that it works both ways. It's that there's only one way. Hmm. This is a very Zen statement. Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is. And um, I... That is my, you know, I, I, that's how I feel. I, I believe that, um, you know, even going through all the details of the science of attachment, you know, studying this very intensely and the intricacies and the complexities and the conflicts, and not everybody agrees, you know, this is not one mass, you know, coherent statement by a, a community, um, but it just um, confirms what I believe, which is what you just said, that love is a state of mind. It is a, um, a, a way of being. It's a, it's a state of grace. It's a state of presence. And it's available to each and every one of us every single second of our lives. And the only way we can experience it is through the senses. That's it. Um, now, how do we get to the senses? There are 10,000 ways, right? I studied attachment for 10 years um, because I'm the kind of person who needs to understand. I needed to trust something. I came out on the other side to say, oh, you know, this is just about being who I am. This is about delighting in my experience. That was Mary Ainsworth's technical term for this love that she saw in these securely attached pairs. Delight. It's a very simple, very present state of mind. You can't fake it, you can't convince yourself, and yet you can cultivate. And how do we cultivate? We cultivate by letting go of the present, of of our thoughts, um, and trying to dig deeper into the present moment of our, that's in our own bodies and in our own hearts. And that's what 20 years plus on the cushion has taught me. And 10 years in the science of attachment has really just confirmed that. So I feel really, I'm eager for other people to give it a shot. That's fantastic. And then just one last question uh, before I ask you to lead a practice. Um, You're also an activist and were involved in the 90s in what's become known today as the affirmative consent policy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe you can describe that. And I have spent a lot of the past year myself looking at the intersection of activism and meditation practice for my new book, which is called Real Change. And mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that intersection. Yeah, you know, that is such a juicy topic. I'm so excited about your book. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Mary Ainsworth ha- discovered that um, in, the, in the first round of mothers that she met, and they were in Uganda, she found that the mothers with the secure babies were what she called excellent informants. Meaning, like you said, they took in information. They, she had asked all the women the same questions about their babies, and she had this impression that they all were hospitable and open to conversation and sharing. But when she looked back at her notes, she realized that some people really um, didn't have as much to say as others. And she began to see that women who, that people, parents who were what she called excellent informants, had more secure children. And so when I think of activism or I think of what's going on in the world today, I really have been thinking a lot about this. And, um, and I keep coming back to Mary's concept of being an excellent informant because there's a lot of informing on others going on and a lot of that needs to happen. Clearly, people in charge need to be called to task and they need to be brought to justice. Like That's a, you know, obvious. Um, in terms of how do we transform the world that, you know, beyond policies and people in charge who need to be brought to justice, how do we change our feelings? How do we change our thoughts? Um, we need to learn to pay attention and we need to learn to ask for more information and we need to know what we don't know. And so the way I think about this is, you know, to become an activist is to um, is to really try to um, try to empower ourselves and others to to make to to get information as much information as we possibly can and to become excellent informants about ourselves about the shadows of ourselves the parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of 
and, and what's actually going on in the world. You know, like if you don't know about, um, you know, what happened in Tulsa, then we need to learn about that. If you don't know what happened to George Floyd, then learn about it. But we have to move through the shame of feeling like we should know everything, that um, we should feel a certain way, and that if we have certain thoughts or feelings, that's wrong. And and instead become excellent informants, become curious about where did I get that idea? Why am I afraid to know that? What are my thoughts and feelings? And like like with the letting go of our expectations around our kids, it's it's a gift. It's an opportunity if we're willing, if we dare, if we're brave enough to look deeply at ourselves and what we're made of and to and to become excellent informants and to try to get to the bottom and the root of who we are and why we do what we do. So that's the work that I've been doing for a long time. Um, it's taken many different forms, sometimes as an activist, sometimes as a parent, sometimes as a writer, but the, the, the mission is always the same. Fabulous. Thank you. So to close our conversation, I would love for you to lead us in a meditation practice of some kind. Sure. So in Zen, um, we practice Zazen, which is um, still um, just still sitting. And so I would encourage everybody to sit comfortably in a chair or um, on a cushion if you have one and um, put your feet on the ground and just try to you know settle yourself so that you're stable. And make sure your spine is straight and that your ears are over your shoulders so that your, your breath can flow easily. And um, in, in Zen, we put our hands in what's called the cosmic mudra, which I love. Um, it's, so you put your hands on your lap, your, your active hand. If you're a righty, you put your right hand down first and then your left hand rests on top of it. And your thumbs touch gently on top, gently, like you could maybe hold a piece of paper, but you don't want to be pressing. And so, um, so we're just sitting up straight, but relaxed. You know, you don't want to sit, try to hold yourself, but try to just, um, you know, be natural. And, and then what we're going to do is um, simply breathe. And um, we're going to breathe in through the nose and really try to contact the breath coming in through your nose. And then let the breath out through the mouth and bring your attention, if you can, to what's called the hara, which is the area um, right below your belly button. And um, if you bring your mind there, if you try to um, draw your attention there, that's a way to really center yourself. So we're going to just breathe in through our nose and breathe out through our mouth. And if you like, you can count your breath. One, you know, breathing one in and then out two. And then in three, out four, in five, out six. And then when you get to 10, start again at one. Now you may end up at 20, you may, and you may not get past one, but the practice is when you notice your thoughts to let go of your thoughts, whatever they are, whether it's you know about the, the practice, whether it's about today, whether it's about what you're gonna eat, whatever the thought is, just simply notice it let it go and return either to your breath or to your counting, whatever your practice is, and to um, you know return gently and to not judge the thoughts. Um, one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about meditation is that you're supposed to stop thinking. Well, that's never going to happen. So just see the thought, let it go, and return to your breath. So I'm going to ring a bell three times. And then we're going to sit quietly for, um, say, three minutes. And then I'm going to ring the bell twice and we will, um, and then we'll end. Does that sound good? That sounds great. Great.
Well, thank you so much for leading that. To learn more about Bethany's offerings, you can visit her website at www.bethanysaltman, that's B-E-T-H-A-N-Y-S-A-L-T-M-A-N.com. And her book, Strange Situation, is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.